Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this opportunity to gather. Thank you for our families. I pray that you would bless us, make us faithful in all the relationships that you've given us. In your son's name, amen. Okay, I am talking about when the world is rated R, which is always, because the world is always rated R. The theme of this conference, Keep Your Kids, is something that is easy for us to connect to if we're parents, grandparents. We want to keep our kids, but I really think that a second title is necessary as well. Keep your kids for a little while, and then make your kids count. Make them count. Given that I, I go around and I promote children's books in various places, I see a lot of parents desperate to keep their kids, to keep their kids locked up, sheltered, safe. That's something we can all understand, right? We want to keep our kids safe. We want to protect them. But you have to think for just a minute, think about if, if you could wave a wand and give your child any life at all, like you could just pick, would you give them the perfectly easy life? Would you want to give your children the life in which it was always 68 degrees? The bath water was always tepid. You could get into it and it just, you didn't feel anything. That's the, that was the perfect metaphor for their entire existence. Every morning they got up and it was easy. And every afternoon it was easy. And they won Powerball. And it was easy. And they lived to be 137 without any ailments until they were transported directly to heaven without pain. Like we, we immediately start trying to shelter our kids, which all is an outworking of not really checking what children are for, like even assessing it biblically. What are children for? Why have we been given children? And the answer is the same as the answer to why have we been given life ourselves? Like, why do you exist? You don't have to have kids to wonder what are humans for? What are people for? You just have to be one to wonder that. So if you're single, you should ask the same question. What are you for? Why do you exist? Why is God giving you another heartbeat, another brainwave, another night's sleep, another meal, another breath? Why is he continuing to hold you in existence? Why do you exist? What are people for? And when you look at little people, and when you are involved in people farming, and you look down at the livestock, you should be able to answer the question, what are they for? Why are we doing this? To what end? For funny stories? For really high diaper bills? For lots of snuggles and fat cheeks? What's the point? Do these children exist simply to give us parental purpose and meaningfulness? It makes it all worth it. You hear that from 
dads especially. Like, well, no, NFL players, rock stars. So now that I have a kid, it's all got meaning. There's a point, right? That's it's a nice cultural cliche. What is the point? Well, the point of these children is the same as the point of you. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. So you look down at that little, you know, lineup of children. You get down at church and you get down below the four foot level and just look at the mobs running around. Look in the rearview mirror of whatever people mover you happen to have. And look at all those faces back there. What's the point? The point is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The point is for your children to glorify God in their existences and enjoy him forever. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. These are all easy Sunday school answers. We're doing it to the glory of God. Great, that, so that sounds perfect. No objections yet. Nobody yet is saying, boy, this guy's really spitting fire. We're trying to glorify God. To move into something slightly more offensive. I think that it is very easy for conservatives and conservative Christians, especially in our culture, which hates the family, it is very easy for us to set up the family as an idol. It's extremely easy. The idolatry of family, which is to say the idolatry of wholesome feelings, nostalgia, comfort, breaking bread around a table. These are all beautiful things. These are all great things. But it's very easy for us to talk about the family like the family is sacred and to start to act as parents like our children exist for the sake of the family. Like they're, they're here for the family. We're having a family. That's what we do. We're all about family. That's honestly just a misplaced priority. Families are great. I'm all for them. I love family. I love the dinner table. I love all the nostalgia and comfort and Saturday night family dinners and laughter. I love all of that. But that's not the point. That's not the goal. That's just us having fun on our way. We're, we're not, that's not the destination. That's just behaving yourself in the minivan on the way to the destination. Given that the point of children is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, what are parents for? What are parents for? What is our role? Protectors? Providers, shelterers, mothers who try to keep everything 68 degrees, keep everything from being in any way, well, extremely visceral. What are we for? How much do we try to shelter our kids in a way that is actually just destruction? We try to drag them into the family, keep them focusing inward on the family and being part of this family. And we're gonna keep you safe from that world out there. And we're all gonna look inward while you rot. While your muscles all atrophy, while your immune system goes through the floor. And while I just really handcraft a future victim for the secular world. 
where we just we, we look inward and we say, hold still, don't flex, don't break a sweat, don't bleed, don't you ever risk a concussion. Those, those are things now. Those are, those are a big deal. I remember one uh, football game where I was trying to run off the field after getting just lit by some very large gentleman named Lucas, <laughs> I think. And as I was trying to run off, I noticed that I was deaf from the impact. And I also noticed that the yard markers were going by sideways. I was trying to run that way, but I was running sideways, staggering. And I, I look back on that fondly. Those moments were really good for me. Trying to just trying to get off the field. And incidentally, obviously, I could have my bell rung that much and not have a concussion because I remember it now. I've had another uh, real concussions where I did not remember anything at all. What are we for? Am I supposed to just protect my kids? Don't do that. You'll stub a toe. Don't do that. You'll bleed. Think about Nitzavet. Who is Nitzavet? Anybody? King David's mom, according to the Talmud. At some point, do you think she had a conversation with her husband of like, do you really think he should be killing bears? <laughs> is, that, is that age appropriate? What are the chances of a concussion? How about lions? Oh yeah, lions too. There's a, there's a sense in which David's mom is the one who killed Goliath. It's very true. She's the one who crafted this boy. Now we could all wish that she'd given him a, just a little bit more self-control. A little bit. But it is hard to predict that level of success over time. But she raised herself a son who looked at a giant and talked himself some serious smack. That's not an institution-friendly kid, by the way. That's the kind of kid who gets his name on the board. That's the kind of kid who gets uninvited from the co-op. No, you don't understand. He mocked everyone there for not mocking that guy. He talked smack to everybody and told this kid he was going to feed him to the birds. Dial it back, David. What are we for? Are we just supposed to be trying to give our kids easy lives? The answer is no, of course not. I love family. My mom, a long while back, started our, our weekly Sabbath dinner. It's a very important part of our week. It's something we all aim for. At various points in those early years, people would ask, do you have to go? But do you have to? And the answer was, of course not. No, never, ever. Never would I missed one of many of those meals that I have missed, would my mom ever say, you're missing again? Why are you missing? Family's important. Like, no, go, go kill. Like, go out there, go fight, 
And if you can get back, get back. Great, we'll be here. It's like that's how it's been throughout our lives. Family dinners are great and glorious. That culture is great and glorious, but only as a, like a huddle, a team huddle, before you say, blood on three, and then go. <laughs> That's what it's for. We're all huddled up, but we don't go out on the football field and say, man, this is my favorite game. I, I just love being with you guys. <laughs> it's going well. We're still huddled. We're all in this huddle. It's fantastic. No, like blood on three, go. We're supposed to break and go. Go fight, go win, go kill the lion, go talk smack to Goliath, go. Keep your kids only for a time and then let them fly and make them count. And here's the truth of mortality. We all know this. We're all gonna die. All your kids are gonna die, all of them. And you can hope and pray and work toward preparing them to die well, preparing them to be interesting characters who live well and die well and die unafraid. That's the goal. The goal is not to shelter and protect and to give them a childhood that's really similar to a beanbag. That's not the goal. Long life and physical comfort is not the goal. That's not the goal for your kids. As you look down to this crop of humans you're raising, you should not be looking at them saying, the bullseye is for them to live a long time and be very comfortable. And we're going to make our educational decisions based on what will get scholarships, what will make them highly employable, what will give them financial security and comfort. No, you don't throw all that away. Like, you should be looking at them saying, what will make them dangerous? Not what will help them survive. What will make them very difficult for the secular world to survive them? What do I put into this kid to make him more like a Molotov cocktail? <laughs> not, well, I need to give him the wisdom so he understands not to take a job without benefits. No, we're not looking for comfort. We're not looking for longevity. We obviously would all love for our children to live a very long time faithfully. Long life is a blessing. We see that in scripture. Children are a blessing, but they're not the point. They don't exist for you, and you don't just exist for them. They exist to glorify God. So I hope you understand my, my bona fides when it comes to like family dinners and family time and stories and all that stuff. I'm not against any of that, but I am against all of it as a goal. I'm against all of it as a destination. I'm really not interested in having Sabbath dinners two generations from now with my grandkids and having everybody come over and have no one done anything scary. That sounds gross. Where everybody's tame, but well-fed. And I set the thermostat to 68 degrees. I'm not interested in that. But play would you rather for a second. 
Really think through this. As a parent, would you rather raise a son who got very famous, won gold medals, had all sorts of montages made, Disney did a whole biopic about him. He made millions, on the side he built a tech empire, bought you three houses, lived to be 90, but worked his way through four different wives. Or a devout son who died in college. Which would you rather? What's the goal? Which one is the goal? Would you rather raise a beautiful but self-absorbed daughter? She built a whole media empire. You can see her magazines in the grocery store. She's on HGTV. She's on the cover of every magazine, every appropriate magazine in the grocery store, along with her rock star husband with his highlights and his number one country hits. And of course, they're picture-perfect kids. Or would you rather raise a daughter who never married, but lived selflessly, graciously, and bettered the lives of everybody around her? Which would you rather? And when we start to answer these questions honestly, we can start to see that our bullseye has shifted. We're looking for successful kids. We want them to be, you know, comfortable but you know, still faithful in church, as opposed to we want them talking trash to Goliath. We want them building a boat and collecting animals. Everybody thinks they're crazy, and they are. What would we prefer? The goal is not survival. The goal is not for your kids to live a long time. That's just not the goal. We all want our kids to live a long time, but the goal is not for our children to live a long time. The goal is for our children to glorify God while they live and glorify God while they die and then to live forever with him, glorifying him. That's the whole point. Children do not exist for the sake of parents. And it's very easy as I take photos and Instagram, as we give them Christmases and all these childhood memories, as we do all these things that are nurture focused, it's very easy to start to think that these kids exist for this family culture we're building. We have this family culture and we do these things together and to just nurture, 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 and then to never think in terms of the launch. Like, where's that launch point? What am I actually preparing them for? What is the goal? And the goal is to be scary. In my Outlaws of Time books, if, I am, if I'm signing a book for a kid and I have time, if there's not a big line, I will write often in there, every hero needs to be part nightmare. And as a result, I've had a lot of conversations with moms. <laughs> They kind of, they circle back to the booth or whatever later and they're like, so, what are, you, what are you trying to say? It's like, oh, I'm saying every hero needs to be part nightmare. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. 
If we look at how God raises up his prophets, we should get a little uneasy. Uh, God always runs them through these programs of not giving a rip. Like you, you talk about people who are totally immune, totally immune to what other people think of them. Good news, you're going naked for three years. <laughs> at the end of three years of nudity, how much do you think you would care what people thought of you? <laughs> I think all of those nerve endings would be gone. <laughs> and you would have no friends. <laughs> but you wouldn't care. You're going to go in the desert and wear a hair shirt and eat bugs. Okay, great. You're going to cook all your food on dung. You're going to marry a prostitute. God prepares his prophets to be completely immune, completely immune to what the world around them thought. All the way and completely. I'm not advocating for that. Say no to nudity. <laughs> but there is wisdom there. We do want to make our kids strong. We want to prepare them for the fight. There's going to be a fight. There better be a fight. Or else what were they for? They're going to go out there and they're going to build something for our team or for the other team. They're going to destroy something for our team or destroy something for the other team. They're not going to go out there and just be as interesting as algae. You're not going to just release these people out there and have them be completely neutral. You're like, good news, AOC. My children are carbon neutral. <laughs> In fact, beyond that, they're worldview neutral too. They're religiously neutral. They had absolutely no effect on anything. You would never even know they were there. That is not the goal. You want your kids to be scary. You want your kids to be the kind of kids who know what to do with a dragon, who know what to do with a giant, who know what to do to the army that's all scared of the giant. You know, you want to raise kids who know what to do when the king says, here, I've got some armor for you. They're like, I just need a rock. I'll take five, but I'm going to need one. <laughs> and David's mom says, I didn't need all those boys either. I just needed one. Just one. And then we're going to let him fly. So, are you strengthening your children for a fight? Are you making them more of a nightmare? Are they becoming more nightmarish every day for God-haters? For people who want to steer our culture into an entirely post-Christian direction, like further and further and further, are your children nightmarish? Do people wake up in a sweat thinking about them? Are they fearless? Are they ready to put their head down and go? Are they ready to bleed? Or are they looking for that 68-degree existence? but they'll always be at family dinner. Don't worry. And they'll bring the grandkids. It'll be fantastic. And nobody's going to talk about how badly behaved they are because that'll, that'll make it awkward. And that would not be 68 degrees. 
We're all going to be gathered up. We're going to have those huddles, but we're going to leave the huddle and not do anything. And then we're going to have another huddle. Not the goal at all. You want to be building up your children's immune systems. You want to be building them up in courage. You want to be building them up in toughness, boys and girls. It looks different, but you want them tough. You want them unafraid. You want them unintimidated. And you want them to have, well, really unwieldy edges that just don't institutionalize easily when they're out there in the world. They're going to say stuff. They're going to open their mouths and they're not going to be worried about what might happen to them when they say something true. You're not going to be afraid. That's the goal. So keep your kids when they're young. By all means, gather them in close. Nurture them, hug them, pinch those fat cheeks. But no, they're supposed to go die. That's what they're for. They're supposed to go live and go die. And if you make your parenting decisions based on what will get them the fewest bruises, you are failing them. That's not how we should be doing this. Get a little bit more on the David parenting track. Think about some counterintuitive solutions to childhood fears. Even when you're still in that really like nurture, nurture phase, we're not launching them into the public schools at the age of six. We're not doing that kind of thing. We're trying to equip them so that they're ready we're not sending them out when they're super young. We're not just feeding them to the lions. We're going to wait until they can actually face the lions. But they're going to the lions at some point. Think all the way at that, that super young age when they still have nightmares, when they're scared of things like chickens. <laughs> Little things. I'll tell a story on my son, my oldest. When he was five, he was very imaginative, still is. Imagination would go all over the place. He started having a lot of nightmares about monsters. He would create these really, really massive monster nightmares. And he was little, so I, I started doing what parents always do. I started thinking about how do I remove the scary influences in his life? How do I take those out? I started looking through picture books, being like, which one's scaring him? Where's his imagination coming up with this stuff? Where's he getting it? It turned out it was from Pauline Bain's illustrations in the Narnia Chronicles. <laughs> and so when we reached that point, I thought, yeah, okay, we're not getting rid of that. So what do I do? I started doing that parent thing where I was thinking, I need to remove the hardship. I need to make it not scary. I need to find a way to protect him. Because he's little. Look how fat his face is. His face was so fat. <laughs> and so I'm, my job is not to make him scary. My job is to protect him from all fear. Well, late one night, it finally broke for me. It was one or two in the morning, and he was having another horrible night terror about all these monsters coming for him. And I was riding out of my office was attached to this attic where they all had their bunk beds. And so he opened this door, he came in, and he was scared. He had imagined himself a big, massive, horrible dream. And I was sitting here thinking, when is this going to stop? It's super late right now. And I thought, I realized at that moment that he needed more monster stories. He needed the exact opposite of what I thought. I needed to put more monsters in his life. Big, creepy ones. So I told him a quick monster story. 
1.30ish in the morning. He's already had a nightmare. <laughs> and I'm thinking, it's been months now of these, so it's like, why not just go the other direction and see what happens? <laughs> and then as I started to make sense of this, I thought, you know what, we're going further. Hold on a second. I'm gonna download a first-person shooter game real quick. So I did, one with big gross aliens. And I took my little son and I brought him over to the keyboard and I said, okay. And I was thinking, this is either one of the worst dad moments ever, <laughs> or this is gonna work. And I put his finger on the button. And I said, this makes the shotgun go. And we're gonna run around and shoot some monsters. We're gonna go blow some monsters up. I'll steer when you see one shoot. And so I ran through this little alien maze while my son was going And we, blood. Another monster. And we talked about monster stories and what monsters are for and the story that God tells and what Jesus did. Also, mental aid, Sunday school. And then I sent him back to bed. And we were fine. It worked. It was amazing. Later on, by the time I got to child number five, we did it again, but this one was a girl. And she got terrified of dragons. Dragon nightmare, dragon nightmare, dragon nightmare. So many dragon nightmares. And it having been a few years, and me being a protective dad, and this is my little girl, I started doing that thing again. Where I'm gonna, like, where are the dragons? We gotta find this scary dragon. There's a scary dragon somewhere in our collection, our vast collection of books. There's a scary dragon, I have to get rid of this dragon. Couldn't find it. But eventually it redawned on me that they needed, she needed in this case, more violent stories. So I started telling her dragon stories, bloody ones, bloody, bloody dragon stories about killing dragons. But I also added the very important detail that for every bad dragon, there's two good ones. Only a third of the host of heaven got thrown down. And at various points, she would ask me, are dragons real? They're not real, right? And I would have to tell her the truth. Oh yeah, they're real. Mm -hmm. I know you're struggling with these nightmares. They're real. <laughs> Why did I tell her this? Because they're real. And the answer is never to lie to your children. So I told her about the two good ones for every bad one, but there are, there are real bad ones. Yep, there are. And I told her these dragon stories, and it helped a lot, and we got through it. And we talked about Jesus crushing the head of the serpent. And we talked about the host of heaven that is obedient. We talked about the angels of children that always see the face of God. We went to the whole council, and we did all the dragon stories. And the stories of the dragon death were all bloody and violent. And it worked. The nightmares went away. And then incidentally, like a couple months later, we were at church in the Logos gym, and I picked her up and was holding her, and she looked over my shoulder, and she pointed up at a pet banner. There's this banner that had been painted by some kid for Night's Fest at Logos. She pointed at it and said, there's my nightmare. <laughs> it's like, it was church. <laughs> which is even worse than the Narnia Chronicles. It's like, honey, we're not going to church anymore because it's giving our daughter nightmares. As parents, we want to protect, and we should be looking to equip, to strengthen. 
We should be telling Bible stories for real, not the neutered, gentle versions. The real ones. Tell the real Bible stories. The real story of Noah is not that everybody stayed up past their bedtimes and had a little bit too much to drink, and so God killed everybody. <laughs> no. You can see how that would cause doctrinal problems. <laughs> Tell the real story. Tell the real story of Samson. Tell the story about how he killed more Philistines when he died. And that's a good thing. He lost his eyes, but finish the story. Does he have eyes now? Yes, he does. Tell the story of David feeding Goliath to the birds. Tell the story of Elijah talking a whole lot of smack and then out running horses. Tell the story of Elisha praying to open the eyes, to have the eyes open of his servant. And they're in the cave. And they're looking out at the king's army and he's not worried about it. And the servant's freaking out. And so Elisha prays that his eyes will be opened. Tell the story for real, which means one of the first things you should tell your kids is that there's such a thing as angel horses. Right? His eyes are open. The servant's eyes are open. And he sees cavalry, like angelic cavalry. There's horses. Angel horses are for real. Tell the story of Moses, the way it actually happens not the way the Prince of Egypt show does. <laughs> Don't let DreamWorks do your child's exegesis. The old man with the big beard and the magic stick, he comes in and he's part nightmare. He's a lot nightmare, actually. Moses comes in, river goes blood. I mean, like, that's nasty. He turns his staff into the meanest snake. He calls down the angel of death, but not before giving everybody a blood ritual to protect them. Like, this is scary stuff. Tell them the story. Tell them the story for real. And of course, tell the story about him hitting the rock and not getting to go to the promised land also. There's a time for all things. Ecclesiastes 3. Inspiration for a lot of folk songs. To everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, as your kids will. A time to plant and a time to pluck what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing a time to gain and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time of war and a time of peace. When you have those little fat-faced kids, it's easy just to think that you're in protect. It's a time to protect. That's it. It's actually a time to equip it's a time to equip imaginations, to catechize loves and loyalties, to give them vicarious experiences through stories of courage and sacrifice, to tell them Bible stories, to fill their souls up with Bible stories and stories of God's faithfulness. Fill, 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 fill. Why are you doing all this nurturing? Because the next time is coming, the time to launch, the time to make them count, 
the time to send them out, the time to actually light that Molotov and throw it, and not just huddle. Saccharine storytelling only weakens your children. It makes them softer. Gentle, sheltered living weakens your children. It equips them for nothing. Let the kid fall out of a tree. He needs that. He needs to know what it's like to bounce <laughs> and get up. And when he does, tell him to stop crying. Tell him to blow it out and be done. One woman I've never met, but I admire greatly, mother of a friend of mine in junior high school. This girl in my class mentioned that her little brother was weak. He was a putz. And her mom had finally realized that she'd been coddling him and it was bad for him. That he was soft, he was scared, he didn't like physical contact, he didn't want to wrestle. And so she locked him outside. <laughs> and I don't remember how many it was, but there was a fixed number, and she said he was not allowed to come back in until he had eaten a certain quota of ants. <laughs> well, she just said, I, know, I want you to find them and eat them, and you're not coming back in until these ants are eaten. It was a, a watershed moment in his life. That's a, that's a good mom moment. That one goes down in the Hall of Fame, right there. Go eat your ants. <laughs> Stories are really potent and helpful in this regard, especially when you're in that little phase. But all the way up, stories give you that calibration, those character instincts. What should characters do? Hopefully you're grooming and you're raising really interesting characters. Hopefully you are becoming, you're working to become really interesting characters. And where you learn how characters should behave is in story. Vicarious experiences, vicarious experiences with fear, vicarious experiences with death, with worry, with betrayal, prepare you for real experiences. Stories are really powerful tools to catechize those imaginations, to get those instincts calibrated. Controlled experiences outside of storytelling, living stories, controlled experiences prepare for the uncontrolled. Your kids are gonna have lives where everything's out of everybody's control except for God's. Things are gonna happen. Diseases are gonna come. Cars are gonna jump the median. Lightning's gonna strike. They're gonna go out into a world where it's the story is told by God and God alone, where no human controls it. When they're children, you can control those experiences as they practice, as you catechize them. You can control it with stories, and then you can control it with things like sports, things that are physically painful. You want your kids to experience that. You want them to have to push through. You want them to hurt. And you want them to hurt in a place where they can practice what it's like to hurt and how to handle it so that that dial can go up. It can slide up as they enter into the real world where stuff hurts, where um, like, it's going to be emotionally painful, where people die, 
where all the people die. Where they're going to have to give birth to a human. That's a little stressful. Bloody and violent. Who made that up? What are you preparing them for? What kind of lives are you preparing them for? I remember the first, the very first time I got to play football, I was all excited. I'd really wanted to for a long time. Logos signed a deal with Genesee High School and we were able to go play football, eight-man football, which is awesome. But we were able to go and we were there in the summer doing extra work, doing stupid things like bear crawling hundreds of yards and doing things that physically I just didn't think were reasonable. <laughs> this isn't that long ago, but it's politically times have changed a little bit. So this isn't me saying, man, back in the 50s, this is 95, 94. I remember the coach saying, it's time to run the Bulldog Mile. What's the Bulldog Mile? Say these little Christian school kids. <laughs> that sounds fun. You're going to run until you throw up or pass out. Really? Is that allowed? It's probably not allowed now. But it was allowed. And the coaches said, oh yeah, we're doing, we're going. And you're going until you're unconscious on the ground or vomiting. And as boys dropped, as they passed out, I remember watching coaches go over and kick them to make sure they were actually unconscious. <laughs> what is this for? To make us a little bit scarier. That's what it's for. That's the goal. Sports, pain, blood, travel. A lot of you guys travel to get here. Travel is one of those things that always brings curveballs. Those are awesome. Your kids get to watch how you respond when really bad stuff happens. They get a front row seat on how to be a great character or not. How are you going to handle this? How is this going to go? Travel's fantastic. Ambitious projects. Overly ambitious projects. Power tools. Scary things that could cause damage. True confessions. I drank my first beer on Christmas when I was 12. My mother put it in my stocking. <laughs> <laughs> it was awful. Don't applaud that. It was terrible. She could have chosen a much better beer. But she put it in there as a joke, and it was 68 degrees. And being the 12-year-old, on Christmas morning, I was like, I'm going to drink it. And my mom immediately tried to say, like, well, does, that, does the joke go that far? The joke's over now, right? I put it in there. This is where it stops. And dad said, no, you gave it to him, Nancy. <laughs> and I sat there on principle, working on that beer that was awful. Really unpleasant Christmas morning experience. But still, I remember it fondly. Create lots and lots of opportunities for your children to fail. Create opportunities for them to, if 
to get knocked down, to get punched in the face, to strike out, to be sad, to fall in the creek, to pick off their own ticks. Give them lots of opportunities for failure. Give them responsibility. Give them the paints. Let them try the jigsaw. Like you're preparing them. You're preparing them to be more and more intimidating, not softer and softer. Create lots of opportunities for failure. Lots and lots. This is why rigorous education is so great. Go, 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 go. This is why grade inflation is so bad. You want them to get bad grades. You want them to experience it. You want them to have difficulty, to have deadlines. You want them to, to come up short. Give them responsibilities. Let them do things that are physical and uncomfortable. I'm not saying send them out to watch the sheep and tell them not to call home, but just fight the bear themselves. Just kill the lion and then let us know about it. Create these opportunities for failure. And then when that failure comes, be as gracious and as forgiving as our father is. We are all incredibly spoiled rich kids. All of us. God just gives and gives and gives and gives to us. I'm not saying make your kids' lives hard. Like, try to match God in his giving, in his graciousness. Give joy, give laughter, create all that, that warm and wonderful family environment, and then give the opportunity for pain and failure. And tell your kid to push through. Say, man, sorry, sorry you, uh, you cheesed it on that one. You can do better next time. Don't get upset, but push them. Move from nurture and think of if we think of nurture as sort of like love and protection and preparation, move into really high expectations and love and graciousness. But where you say, yeah, no, you, you, oh, you feel like you're gonna throw up? That's allowed. And then keep running. Don't quit. You don't get to walk off the track because you're tired. You entered a race hold them up to a high standard. We are all Abraham, all of us, asked to sacrifice Isaac. All of us. These kids don't belong to you. They belong to God. And because he is, and I mean this with all respect, completely crazy, he gives these kids to us without a permit, without a licensing process, with no orientations. The first time I walked out of a hospital holding a car seat, I thought, this, this can't be legal. <laughs> this kid is forever. This is a human. And I'm just, it's on me? Yes. God gives us these children, but they are his. And we're supposed to equip them to truly glorify him and truly enjoy him. We are all Abraham, and we're all asked to sacrifice Isaac. Saddle your donkey. Get your kids on up the mountain. That's what we're supposed to do. The last comment I have for you, especially for fathers, but moms, 
You're the ones who can get really protective. We all know this. It's, it's built in there. You can get really, really protective of those kids and you can want to shelter them and want to give them an easy life. But we're supposed to be more like God, right? Right, another Sunday school answer. And God sent his son to do what? To die in his early 30s. The goal is not longevity. The goal is God's glory and impact. Christ was sent as the son of God to come here and make it into that third decade, which a lot of us have already passed. We're supposed to be more like God. So send your children out and tell them to go make an impact. You don't tell them to live safe and gently. Go. Tie those torches to those foxtails and send them out into the vineyard. Thank you.